3: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much, and welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, we do begin with breaking news, fresh comments from the Cleveland Fed president speaking today in New York City. Our Steve Leisman here with those comments. Steve?
4: Yeah, Scott, and a a very hawkish Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says policy needs to become restrictive. She supports a funds rate, she says, that's above the 4.4% for this year, that's the median Fed rate, and above the 4.6% that's the median for next year. She does not anticipate any cuts to the Fed's target range next year. She said the larger risk comes from tightening too little, not too much. All of this sounding a bit like a response to the Perceived dovishness of Lale Brainerd yesterday. She says, Mester says, there's been no progress on inflation. Quote, cannot even see inflation, can even say inflation has peaked yet. And she's worried inflation may move higher later this year because of the Ukraine war, rising gas and energy prices as well. And also says it would take a couple of years to hit the Fed's 2% inflation target. She does see, however, low levels of financial stress, but the Fed remains attentive to those financial vulnerabilities. Here's a quote from her speech saying... Being cautious means that the FOMC should persevere in taking policy actions to return the economy to price stability. So she weighs the risk and comes out very sharply on the hawkish side. Scott?
3: You know, Steve, I want you to stay with me. I want to show everybody what the markets are doing. We had come off uh, the lows of the session. Uh, At least for the moment, we're sitting there. Uh, Dow is in the green, as is the S&P. Maybe some of that due as well to that New York Fed survey that showed near-term consumer inflation expectations have cooled Uh, So maybe that was helping uh, just a bit. But, Steve, you know, as I come back to you, and let me also uh, let everybody know, of course, we have the investment committee with us today. Brenda Vangelo, Jim Liebenthal, Josh Brown, Stephanie Link is here with me uh, on on the set today. You know, I I hear these very hawkish comments. They contradict somewhat, as you noted, uh, Brainerd a bit, and maybe some of the others of late who have sounded a little more measured. Uh, Are we setting up for a fractured Fed of sorts, Steve? We've been... Pretty much unanimous in policy of the of the most recent meetings, and I wonder if we're
4: entering a different territory. I, I think we're setting up for a more normal Fed, Scott, as the way I put it. I think the unanimity of the Fed uh, has been fairly remarkable and really more out of sample than what I remember uh, covering a Fed that has different ideas and kind of meets in the middle here. This has been a Fed that has been. Uh, monolithically in favor of hiking, hiking sharply, and hiking to a high rate, and singing from the same hymnal uh, monetary policy hymnal tune about uh, uh, getting to a high rate and staying there. Um, I would say some very, very slight differences have emerged. And those differences involve how much progress has indeed been made and the speed with which you should get there. I don't know that that speed debate matters so much for November, where 75 basis points seems fairly dialed in. Perhaps it matters for December and all of it matters more for next year, which is I think there is a pause point in their heads about where they might stop and look around. But there is, I think, a debate about where that stopping point is. Is it closer to four or closer to five? Is it in the middle at four and a half percent? It's hard to say right now. It doesn't
3: sound closer to four. I mean, if you had to make a guess, at least from the commentary thus far.
4: Now, that that said, let me let me let me let me let me. me I want to remark on that very quickly, uh, and I'll get you back to you, which is even uh, Evans, who was perceived as dovish yesterday, he was at that four and a half percent, four four and a half to four and three quarters percent. So you're absolutely right about that, Scott. Yeah, Steve. So again, stay with me. Uh, I want to get the committee involved. As I said, Stephanie is
3: is sitting right in front of me. Um, This is a a central part of of the debate, Uh, whether the Fed's doing too much, whether they've already gone too far, uh, whether their rhetoric is now too hawkish, uh, whether things are starting to crack. Uh, which leads to something breaking, Uh, liquidity issues being talked about. Jamie Dimon's comments yesterday. You put it all in the Sunday. What do you get?
5: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to digest, right? There is the Fed. There's the Bank of England. There's inflation. We're going to get really important reports this week with PPI and CPI. Uh, There's a downshift definitely happening into the economy. That being said, there's clearly no pivot happening. Messer just told us that, right? And it's across the spectrum of all the Fed officials. So I don't really think there's a debate. They want to be tight. They want to be tight for longer. And we have to adjust to that. And all by the way, we had a very hot nonfarm payroll report on Friday. And today we got the NFIB Small Business Optimism Index up now three months in a row. So that gives the Fed cover to be more hawkish and stay more hawkish. So the two important questions, what happens to earnings in all of this? We know they're going down, but to what magnitude? And are we pricing in a lot of bad news, which I think we are? The second question is, what is the impact of the higher interest rates? And we're not going to know that until maybe first half of 2023. I think it's recession, more likely than not. But we have to see and work on the data. Thank goodness we have good jobs. Thank goodness, because everything else Right now is kind of rolling and rolling hard.
3: You know, Jim Labenthal, you become our, our resident pivot planner of sorts, right? <laughs> Thinking about when this is going to happen no, and, and no. what it's going to mean uh, for the markets. No. And Mester just reminds you uh, that it's not anywhere
6: close to, on her mind. Okay, so Scott, um, I'd like to take words that begin with the letter P for $500, please. The answer is not pivot, it's not put. It's not pause, all right? Those are not on the table, and I am not calling for a pivot, and I haven't for some time. However, there is another P, and it's the word peak, okay, as in where's the peak Fed funds rate, and what is peak inflation? The most interesting thing that I've heard so far is that Ms. Mester thinks we haven't seen peak inflation yet, and that corresponds with what Neil Kashkari said last week. Mm -hmm. And my question, earnestly asked, is what are they looking at? And I'm not saying, what in the world are they looking at? I'm saying, literally, what are they looking at? Are they looking at owner-equivalent rent, which obviously has not peaked but is clearly lagging? Or are they looking at Case-Shiller home prices, which are rolling over? Or are they looking at market-based rent indications, which are rolling over? And there's evidence, there's news articles on that galore. Are they looking at gasoline futures, which are down 35% from the peak in June? No. I can go on and on. The question they're not, is because they don't care about.
3: They uh, don't care about, as Kashkari said to me in my question to him on Twitter. Uh, headline inflation is irrelevant to, to this story. Really, food and energy, they don't care about that. They, they care about the more sticky core elements of inflation, which they clearly think haven't peaked. Steve, though, at some point, based on what Jim is saying, because I think in many respects he's right. I mean. No progress on inflation. You know, at some point, do you have to call the credibility into question again when you hear <laughs> comments that seem to fly in the face of what are <clears throat> metrics that are clearly, clearly rolling over?
4: You know, um, Jason Furman last Friday chided me for making the argument that um, that Jim Labenthal just made um, and, and I think Jason was right. Uh, I'm happy to say that on, on national television. I was wrong. I was pointing out, hey, this is a lag indicator. And, and Jason said, you know what, you can't just cherry pick the things that are going to go down. You've got to also look at the things that are going to go up. And, and Scott, um, your focus on Neil Curry's re- response to you, I think, is really critical because what they're looking at is not just the core, But the core services area, that's really a key area where they're seeing inflation and they project additional inflation to come. Jim is right. Some things have come down and some things will come down more. But there are still additional forces that they see in the economy that could be pushing up inflation, including wages and, and, and beginning with the tightness in the labor market that Stephanie mentioned, which they believe is going to add to additional inflation in the months ahead. Plus the idea that gas prices are back on the rise and there is this massive threat that, that, that exists over Europe as to gas and oil prices regarding uh, Russia and the Ukraine war.
3: You know, Josh, it just then raises when you listen to the rhetoric of Mester and she's obviously not uh, on an island by herself articulating the views that she has. Uh, there are many who in, within the Fed believe exactly as she does and have said as much. It it just raises the issue of uncertainty and the possibility, if not probability, of something
1: breaking somewhere. I want to introduce another P word to the discussion, which is please, this is this is a body. This is a body of people who one year ago today were telling us based on their forecasts, there would be. Listen to me now. No rate hikes in 2022? None. We have just had the fastest, most severe rate hiking cycle Mm -hmm. most people in the markets have ever seen. And now we're going to listen to their forecasts about when they think they're going to be done or what they might do a year from now or six months from now or two quarter, one quarter from now. They have no idea and they have zero credibility Um, The only thing worse than than the Fed's forecast is no forecast at all, which is why we cling to these things. But in reality, they don't know what they're going to do. And I want to say one thing about this pivot term. We all need to get this out of our vocabulary. Um, my, My friend Colin Roche wrote a really great essay at Pragmatic Capitalist today. Everyone should read it. And he talks about in basketball, the act of pivoting takes place when you're still holding the ball. They don't have the ball anymore. They're about to be on defense. They don't even know it. They have lost control of the game. They're no longer on offense. There's a transition underway. And now it's almost like a a contest. How quickly can we cause a financial crisis so that we have the the excuse to stop ratcheting up the hawkishness and and the expectations of more rate hikes? So I, I don't think what they're doing is wrong. I think this this idea of sending 12 people out every week to scare everybody is probably gonna take this into a place where it didn't need to go in the first place. So I am not concerned with what they think they're gonna do six months from now. And if you look at some of the more high-frequency economic data coming out, it's very clear that they're getting their way all across the board. Uh Uh And you could blame whatever you'd like for that, but just look at Bank of America put out credit card and debit card spending today. It's falling off a cliff in some categories. Home furnishings, renovation, um, all, uh, all of the things that have anything to do with the housing market, which they have successfully frozen <coughs> solid, um, those, those data points are going in their direction. You're going to see it in apparel. You're going to see it eventually in travel, believe it or not. The problem is the thing that they are laser focused on, employment, will be the last place that this shows up. You still have employers who are scarred from the memory of trying to hire people in 2021 right. and in early 22, and they are warehousing talent. That's why you're not getting the layoffs, and that's why you're still seeing hot jobs reports. But that will be well, the last place that the Fed's success I will want,
3: show up. Leesman, I want you to, to respond to that because I think Josh is, is making some good points here. And I like the analogy of of losing control of the game. Because when the refs lose control of a game in in sports, you get unnecessary roughness penalties all over the place, personal fouls. It, it gets out of control. And maybe there is about to be an unnecessary roughness on the economy to the degree that they lose control of the kind of, you know, issue yeah, that Jamie I'm Dimon was to referring response, to. Scott,
4: I'm happy to respond. Just don't take my explaining of the Fed for defending of the Fed, because I've done quite a bit of work and, and done it on this this network a lot, the, the about how wrong the Fed has been. Josh is absolutely right about that. The the trouble I have right now is is I don't I, I see what Josh is saying about the high frequency data. Um I'm not sure how well any or all that would work in terms of the making of monetary policy when you're trying to make policy for the full economy. I completely agree with him that the idea that the Fed will be wrong is a 100 percent guarantee with the only question of how they're wrong. And I also think you've got to take priors into account, which, again, is probably not the best way to make policy. But it is true. The Fed was badly burned in its transitory call, had that wrong. And right now they're probably erring on the side of doing too much. Um, And that's what, by the way, Mester talked about the idea of of, um, of the risk management saying, mm-hmm. let's do too much here if we have to. That's where the bigger risk lies right now. So I think that's I think Josh is right. You can look at the high frequency data. You can contradict what the Fed is saying. But when you look at the sort of top line data right now, which some of which is indeed lagged, uh, you, you can't make a, a conclusion that the Fed has won the inflation. Battle.
3: So, Brenda, then what's at stake with Thursday's CPI read, which is, again, it's, it's a backward looking deal. Um, But it has dictated where the trade has gone and we've been burned uh, on multiple occasions in the most recent months.
7: That's right. We've definitely been burned uh, multiple times. So I think that's probably what everyone's anticipating is going to happen again. And I can't tell you exactly what the number is going to be. It certainly if it's hotter than expected, that's going to be a negative. But I feel like a lot of that is already kind of being baked in here with expectations, especially this week with comments like Mester coming out um, with these very hawkish comments. But I think if we look at the goods sector in particular, it, th- we are seeing the input prices are coming down. The ISM manufacturing prices paid number that came out recently was almost all the way back down to pre-pandemic levels. So I think we're seeing input prices coming down. Maybe they're not ultimately ending up uh, with consumer prices coming down. But I think it's only a matter of time, especially if we're seeing high-frequency data and other things suggesting the economy really is weakening that should hurt demand which ultimately will cause somebody to blink and start lowering prices Mm -hmm. with input prices coming down. So I think we're at the cusp we've been at the cusp of a change for a long time. Um, It's certainly been a frustrating year uh, but I think if you want to be constructive I still think you know you have to look at this year in the context of what's happened over the last many years in terms of market corrections we've seen and look at this as potentially an opportunity knowing that you're not going to catch the bottom per se, but I think we're awfully close in terms of what's being priced in.
3: All right. So last comment, Steve, before I, I pivot to to the, the market activity, which I want to talk to the gang about. <laughs> Wolf Research. Uh, I don't know why that was funny. <laughs>
4: They you, say you, ma- ha- you
3: have the ball, Scott. You, ha- you. Ha- you
4: have the ball. So I have you not lost control pivot. of
3: this game. Let's just put it to you that way. Uh, ma- <laughs> major. Well, no, it's true. Major <laughs> cracks are starting to raise alarm bells. So, says Wolf today. We believe that major credit and liquidity cracks are already starting are starting to show. We're not calling for a blow up, at least not yet. You've got the IMF with their warning today uh, about GDP. They also say a rapid rise in rates could fuel a global economic disorder. So how is all that playing in the room uh, in, in D.C.?
4: Um, you, you've had different comments. Uh, you had a, a maybe more forward comment from Brainerd yesterday who said uh, liquidity is a little fragile in core markets. Uh, uh, Mester saying today that she doesn't really see that. She thinks that she, that she doesn't see a high level of stress, but uh, she is monitoring it. Other Fed officials said they're monitoring it. Um, I, I think they're going to push this as far as they can, Scott. I think that they feel like they have given markets a lot of warning. Remember, they started talking about really pivoting. For sure, they had the ball back in November. Um, at the end of November, they didn't raise rates for several months. Um, they're doing their best that they can right now to telegraph where they're going, they were which still is another stimulating. sort of response to what Josh. Well, to, to, fair enough, Scott. But uh, Josh, but the idea is that. They're saying they gave the markets warning in order to prepare for it. And actually, um, Charlie Evans uh, kind of responded to Josh's concern yesterday, uh, uh, Josh's concern today about uh, talking too much, where where Evans said, hey, could you imagine if we didn't give the market warning? How much complaining and how much concern there would be and how much volatility there would be in markets if you didn't have an idea of where each Fed official stood and how all of that combines to create... An outlook for the that's federal That's how it Reserve. used to be. You should read
1: Charlie's speech. That's how. Well, that's what he.
4: There's an argument.
1: that. Yeah, but there's an argument that all of the soothsaying and and stroking our hair and whispering in our ear, we have your back. That that engendered the the environment of 2020 and 2021, which went way too far and made the unwind worse. Absolutely. So so maybe maybe no, if we absolutely. talk less about being hawks, let's also not constantly reassure markets that we have your back. And let's get back to the pre-press conference Fed, which we all sort of remember uh, from the days before the financial crisis. There's too much talking in both directions.
4: Um, I think there's two things. One is to be talking and the other is providing guidance. I think you might be right. I guess I'd agree with you, Josh, that Maybe there's too much talking. I don't think there's too much guidance. I think guidance is the way that the Fed does monetary policy in probably the least painful way, which is the more markets can prepare for what's coming and understand where the Fed thinks, what Mm -hmm. the Fed thinks, the the less volatility there is, uh, which I guess creates the need for you to throw back at me the counterfactual of could you imagine having uh, less volatility than we have right now? But in any event, um, I think that that uh, going back to the old ways of not knowing what the Fed is doing until we look at the money supply numbers, I mm-hmm. think, is a worse uh, outcome. All right. Um, Leisman, thank you. I'm going to I'm going to make sure I maintain
3: control. I'm going to bounce you out of here. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah,
4: <laughs> on the bench, baby.
3: All right. There you go. That's Steve Leesman, our senior economics reporter. Let me also remind you uh, today in overtime, we're going to have a conversation. Sarah Eisen is going to have it with the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. Uh, Haven't heard from her in a little while. So uh, it's so pertinent given all of these issues we just discussed. And we'll bring you that today in overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, Let's do this. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about tech. That's been the scene of the crime, the NASDAQ. Lowest level in almost two years. Plus, Uber today is on pace for its worst day in more than two years. Trade coming up on that when we come back in just two minutes. So We're green across the board right now.
8: right now you can try linkedin sales navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. that is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial let linkedin sales navigator help you sell like a superstar today just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started
3: all right welcome back we're watching shares of credit suisse yet again today Took a dip lower, as you can see there, by about 2%. There's a report of a U.S. tax probe uh, and a Senate inquiry. Uh, That is according to a report that we are continuing to follow. We'll monitor that uh, amid, you know, continued questions about uh, the the future of that firm. Uh, Some calls today for a cap raise uh, would be a best strategy there, according to some analysts. As we continue to watch that story uh, unfold in Credit Suisse. Let's talk about technology. Uh, Two-year low. Again, NASDAQ's just been sitting there. Meta, 52-week low. Microsoft, 52-week low. Apple price target cut, 169, uh, from 169 to 155. Uh, Steph, it's a mess. I don't know how else you how else do you you, uh, characterize it? It is a mess.
5: I've been underweight tech. We've been talking about that all year long, actually. And I think a lot of the reason why tech is underperforming is, A, they're long-duration assets. And when rates go higher, you don't want to own long-duration assets. You have uh, stay-at-home beneficiaries, right? And so you have that coming home to roost. You have currency translation issues, which is going to be a mess when they report earnings and when they guide. So numbers are going to have to come down further. Um, And then you have double and triple ordering in certain industries, right? So, I think there's a lot of headwinds. That all being said, the XLC, uh, comm services is down 37% year to date, and the XLK is down 31%. And many stocks are down 40, 50, 60%. My goodness, I mean, I own this Meta, and it's down 62%, and it just gets a downgrade now. Well, that's not helpful. Um, but I do think there are some opportunities that are brewing, right? I mean, I think that
3: Alphabet, right? You, don't you? Have you been telling me you've been looking at Alphabet?
5: I'm looking at, yeah, I am looking at it because I think the valuation is attractive. I just want to get through the digital advertising uh, transition at this point, um, because I just don't know. I kind of think numbers have to come down a bit, uh, but they have so much going for them. Um, I I still like Broadcom very much. Uh, This is kind of a special situation. 49% of their revenues are software.
3: All all of the chips look like special situations these days.
5: Well, well, yeah, that could be the case, but I I have been underweight semis since March, and you know that. Um, This one happens to trade at 13 times earnings and almost gives you a 4% yield, and as I mentioned, almost Almost half of their mix, their revenue mix, is software recurring revenues. They've got a great balance sheet and a great management team. So I think you could find some places to pick within tech. But as long as rates are going higher, um, I think that these stocks will struggle and these sectors will struggle.
3: Farmer Jim, um, you've been—they've been driving a tractor over your Qualcomm, fifty-two week low today. What's good?
6: Yeah, well, look, I mean, technology to me right now is very much about multiples. That's why I trimmed Apple two weeks ago. That's why I sold NVIDIA. Uh, both great companies. They're just too expensive. Now, you brought up Qualcomm, and I look at Qualcomm at 10 times earnings with a growth rate of those earnings Below well above market 10% multiple. going forward. What? Below market multiple,
3: substantially so.
6: On on Apple or Qualcomm? What Qualcomm. What are you talking about? Yeah. Qualcomm. Look, I can't. The market's going to do what it's going to do. I can't respond. We just had it up there at a forward price to earnings of 8.7. This is Qualcomm, for crying out loud. I don't know what the next quarter or two quarters are going to be in the global economy, but I can tell you the next two, three years, there's likely to be a lot of demand for cell phones, for automobiles for the Internet of Things and all the things that Qualcomm is selling into. So, I mean, if you want to sell, I'm not suggesting you're saying this, but if you want to sell Qualcomm at 111, I just think it's a terrible mistake. I think it's a screaming buy right here. You know, I hate to give the redeeming quality that it's down less than a lot of the other semiconductors. What I will really go to here is the peg ratio on this stock being below 1.0. That means its growth rate in earnings is well above what the price to earnings multiple is. Traditionally, that's a great place to buy. Josh? What are your
3: thoughts on the chips? You bought the SMH recently. What do you make of what Jim said? Yep.
1: Listen, these are some of the highest quality companies in the NASDAQ, but growth stocks and technology stocks in particular are in absolute freefall, and the chip names are in the epicenter of that. It's part of what attracted me to the space to begin with, because it had been a really long time since I felt that there would be like an opportunity sector-wide in the space, but you know, I think one of the main things about trying to make investments during a year like this um, is you just have to understand that you're not getting instant gratification. So this is yet another example. Um, these are not expensive stocks at this point, And I think these companies will thrive going forward. But... I, I can't tell you that in the next month, all of a sudden, the sentiment's going to turn. It's just been a really, really tough space. These stocks have been falling since last November. It's almost mm-hmm. a full year of carnage. Yeah. I think we're way, way closer to the end than the beginning, but it's clearly not over yet.
3: Brenda, you got one of these dogs in your book, Intel. <laughs> um, you say it's under review, uh, which you've said, I think, the last time we discussed. Uh, the stock's down 55% from its high. What are you, what's your outlook here?
7: Yeah, I I think for the chip space in general, you know, there are a lot of headwinds, which are known at this point, you know. And then on top of it, we have this, you know, new government restrictions that have been imposed, which is not helpful uh, to the overall story here. But we know there are inventory problems. We know there's end market demand problems. But I think when we look at as a whole and our holdings are Intel and NVIDIA in the space. We're more inclined to hold on to an Nvidia, even though it's certainly more expensive than many names in the group. But it's a really high-quality name, incredibly um, innovative, and so we think that has staying power. And I don't, I can't tell you what I think the the, the catalyst is going to be to get this group going, but it might just think, be that things get less worse, <laughs> which is what we saw in the financial, coming out of the financial crisis in some industries. But this particular group. Feels like there's just a ton of bad news um, being baked in and piled on. Mm-hmm. So there is a chance that if things just stop getting a little bit worse, uh, that, that perhaps that in itself acts as a catalyst to the group here.
3: All right. Coming up, shares of Boeing near the highs of the day. On the back of its latest delivery numbers, the stock now up more than 10 percent this month alone. And three of our committee members own it, which means we'll discuss it and trade it next.
0: Global employment in renewable energy topped 12.7 million jobs last year, up nearly 75% over the past decade. That's according to a report from the International Renewable Energy Agency. Solar, bioenergy, and hydropower account for two-thirds of those positions. In the U.S., wind and solar power jobs are expected to increase by more than 25% over the next 10 years. That's your ESG Fest Fact of the Day.
3: talk some Boeing near session highs. The company released September deliveries and new order numbers Shares still down more than 30 percent this year. They have been outperforming this month. We said they're up 10 percent. Farmer Jim, go to you first. You're Mr. Boeing. Your reaction. Then we'll go to Stephanie Link.
6: <laughs> yeah, and I know I've got some colleagues on the panel as well, but uh, it's a long term turnaround story that is well underway, well underway. Um, I think the news today and yesterday really is about this 737 Max flight in China. Um, Stephanie and I have for some time been talking about, hey, China should recertify the 737 max. What if China doesn't make that announcement, but just simply starts flying the plane? Because that's what it looks like it's happening. So waiting for the announcement is not really, I think, what we should be doing. What I am waiting for an announcement on is congressional approval to extend the deadline for certifying the latest models of the 737 max. That's what investors need to be looking for is when and if Congress will. Extend the deadline for approving the 737 Max-10, which Delta has put in a multi-hundred-dollar, or excuse me, a more than hundred-plane order for, as well as other airlines. So that's what I'm looking for. Steph?
5: Yeah. So Jim talked about 737 Max. They are making progress also with the 787 production that's underway. Uh, China, I really do think, will be a catalyst if if they do recertify recertify, and they will. It's just we don't know the timing of that. But this story in the stock trades on free cash flow and they're poised to actually see a billion dollars of positive free cash flow in the third quarter, which I think will take people by surprise. Then they have an analyst day on November 1st. And I think that they'll level set normalized earnings as well as uh, free cash flow. Free cash flow eventually could get back to eight to 10 billion dollars a year. That is not priced into the stock by any means. And I think it's going to take a long time to get there. But they're making baby steps.
3: Hey, Jim, what about the airlines in general for somebody who owns, I guess, what Delta and Alaska? This American news today, raising their revenue outlook at one point today, it was the best stock within the S&P 500. It's still up near three percent. And uh, a number of the airlines got a lift off of that. No pun intended. Um, but what about this going forward? Because some of that gain had evaporated.
6: Yeah, the, the airlines, Scott, are the epicenter for soft landing versus hard landing. Also, no pun intended. But look, if you go into a recession, airlines are not what you own. Looking at the traffic data and the revenue data, whether it's American Airlines' announcement or TSA traveler counts, the airline demand is fabulous. And it's also coming back in the business sector, sector and international travel. But this is all the reason these stocks are underperforming is this ongoing complaint that we're on the cusp of a recession. That complaint's been going on for several quarters now, and these guys keep printing money. All right, let's get the headlines now from Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha.
0: Hey Scott, here's what's happening at this hour. Russia has unleashed another round of missile and drone attacks across Ukraine. In Zaporizhia, local officials say at least one person is dead after missiles struck a school, a medical facility and apartment buildings. In the city of Lviv, the mayor there says that strikes have left 30% of the city without electricity. At least 20 people have been killed in attacks over the past few days. LEADERS OF THE GROUP OF SEVEN NATIONS HELD A VIDEO CALL THIS MORNING TO DISCUSS THEIR RESPONSE TO RUSSIA'S ESCALATION OF THE WAR IN UKRAINE. UKRAINIAN PRESIDENT Zelensky URGING THEM TO PUT NEW SANCTIONS ON RUSSIA IN A STATEMENT AFTER THE CALL. G7 LEADERS CONDEMNED THE RECENT MISSILE ATTACKS AND PROMISED MORE SUPPORT FOR UKRAINE. AND A SCARY SCENE IN PENNSYLVANIA AS A DAYCARE CENTER HAD TO EVACUATE AFTER A CARBON MONOXIDE LEAK. Firefighters detected the leak after they were called to the Allentown Daycare Center to respond to a report of an unconscious child. At least two dozen children and staff members were rushed to the hospital. Halftime will be right back.
3: We're back. Let's talk about some bearish calls on streaming stocks today. Josh Brown, I come to you first because Bank of America reiterates their underperform on Netflix, uh, which I know you love and think that it's turned the corner, both company and stock.
1: Uh, Love is a strong word. I like it. I'm in it for a trade. I do have a stop loss in on this. Hopefully that doesn't get triggered and I could stay with it. This was a stock that had been exhibiting a lot of strength relative to the rest of the communication services sector really since uh, the summer. It's one of the few stocks that did not make, uh, one of the few stocks in the group, maybe the only uh, large stock in the group, that did not make a new high relative to the June high. And the rest of them all did. Obviously, Meta uh, being the poster child. Um, So I I think that there is a turnaround here underway. um, But. To the point being made by bank of america one of the achilles heels in their strategy yes it's smart to build this ad supported tier is it the best possible timing because we're obviously go if we're going into an economic slowdown it's going to hit advertising companies as hard if not harder and so you're going to try to build an ad platform in the midst of that i would take the other side though um i understand that there will be weakness in advertising but I think this is a brand new platform. There's nothing for them to comp to. I don't think that that's gonna be the thing that stops uh, Fortune 500 companies from attempting to advertise on the platform, the fact that there's overall weakness. I think Netflix has a very compelling proposition. They have people spending more time on Netflix than almost any other activity there is. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm willing to stick it out. Uh, you know, if, if I get stopped out, I'll reevaluate. Maybe I'll try the trade again. Um, But I do own this thing on a leash. Uh, Brenda, Barclays cut Disney today. The
3: price target to 105 from 120.
7: Yeah, I mean, this is a stock that's down more than 46% of the last year, so it's certainly down and out. But similar to Josh's comments about Netflix and the ad-supported version, we think ad-supported version of of Disney is going to be really attractive to advertisers. It's definitely a different venue where they can target a very specific audience that isn't as easy to target right now. Um, So we think that will likely be well-received by the advertising community. And if we look at Disney more broadly, it continues to be a great story of being able to touch the their customer and so and develop a relationship with their customer in so many different ways that we think that is really powerful. And so we view this current moment not as an opportunity to sell or reduce exposure, but actually as an interesting place to get involved if you, have, if you aren't already.
6: So
3: Farmer Jim, I'm looking at Paramount today uh, because Barclays cut the price target to 15 from 20. Bar, uh, B of A cut it to 19 from 28. And what, this thing six months is down 50 percent, 50 percent. Farmer Jim.
6: Uh, That might be better than Netflix, but who cares? It sucks. And I think the surprising thing uh, about this is that I didn't know there was anybody left to downgrade Paramount, but apparently there was. You know, I, I really can't. Worry about what analysts are looking at for the next quarter or two. When I've got a company with a track record of beating on estimates, beating on subscriber additions, the uh, apps that monitor downloads of Paramount Plus show that the third quarter was again a very terrific quarter. This is a company that trades at ten times earnings, five percent dividend yield, with positive free cash flow. I, you know, I don't, I can't, I can't really respond to the analysts who are downgrading now. Uh, it, you know, it's just piling on, but okay. All
1: right, Mike Santoli's up next. Why wouldn't somebody buy this thing, Jimmy? Why wouldn't Google just buy Paramount?
6: Yeah, there's one reason, Josh. It's Sherry Redstone. She owns a controlling stake. That's where it starts and stops.
1: Okay. All
6: right. Okay. Well, sorry. I mean, it's I, say, good question.
3: Mike Santoli's next with his midday word. And to celebrate Hispanic heritage, CNBC is featuring our teammates and contributors. Here's Courtney Garcia, Payne Capital Senior Wealth Advisor.
5: My grandfather immigrated to the US speaking only Spanish in hopes of obtaining a better life for his family. Two generations on, I'm happy to report that he achieved those goals. What made that possible was a strong work ethic, knowing the value of a dollar, and savings, all things that were instilled upon me at a very young age. As I now look to instill those same values upon my own children, peers, and clients, I also wanna stress the importance of investing and making sure that your money is working just as hard as you are to ultimately create generational wealth for your family for years to come.
3: All right. Welcome back. We told you earlier in our program about uh, that report that Credit Suisse was facing a U.S. tax inquiry on client accounts. That firm has now uh, responded to that report uh, saying, quote, Credit Suisse does not tolerate tax evasion. We have implemented extensive enhancements since 2014 to root out individuals who seek to conceal assets from tax authorities. Credit Suisse is cooperating extensively with U.S. authorities, including the U.S. Senate and Department of Justice, and will continue to do so. And we will continue to follow that story. Let's let you know right here. Uh, stocks are at session highs uh, right now. It's interesting. You got the Dow up about 400 or so points. Uh, Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator, is, is with us for his midday word. I'm um, wondering what you're thinking about today. A lot of Fed speak in the last couple of days. Uh, somewhat dire warning, if not forecast from Diamond. And here we are today.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the market was sort of uh, clenched up, expecting a little more disorder in the bond markets. Yields were higher uh, overnight, dollar higher. It seems like it was a little bit of an overseas uh, selling phenomenon and things firmed up over the course of the day. And that allows the stock market, which everybody would acknowledge, uh, has been relatively oversold in the very short term. And it's found enough traction, at least for a couple of days around the year-to-date lows, didn't just didn't find new sellers down there. I think that's as simple as that. Uh, In a sense, uh, the B of A credit card spending data didn't look too bad. In general, it's kind of a it's the economy we thought we had right now, even though we're worried about where it's going from here. Uh, And I think all of it is preliminaries until the CPI. Market would like to kind of cruise into that in a neutral spot, given the fact that it came into the week pretty much near the lows. Uh, neutral means maybe getting a bid from here. I'm not sure it's more uh, complicated than, uh, than that, at least in the very immediate term.
3: Maybe it isn't. Bank of America today uh, suggests the market, their, their flows, uh, they read as a suggestion of the market may have bottomed. Uh, flows suggest investors believe the market may have bottomed. Client flows into equities last week were the third largest since 08. Mark Newton, Fundstrat, says this dip should be bought uh, yeah. The S&P and Q's pullback looks to be ending and should result in a two-week bounce, he says.
2: Sure. I think the seasonals uh, kind of line up in that direction. It's all premised on the idea that you don't get some kind of a big stress fracture opening up uh, in the markets because that's what all eyes have been on uh, for the most part is this idea that we're gonna uh, somehow we're going to have a rupture in the system because of central banks, uh, what's going on, the feedback loops with yields and with currencies – Every minute that doesn't happen, I guess, is uh, is a net positive. And by the way, B of A is saying their clients think perhaps that there's a seasonal trade and we've, we've bought them for a while. And mm-hmm. it's mostly institutional yes. they were pointing to, not retail.
3: Yeah, no, good points you make. I'm glad you clarified uh, that with more yep. specificity. Mike, I'll see you for your last word coming up in a few. Yep. That's Mike Santoli at the Stock Exchange. Uber shares getting slammed. Josh owns that stock. We'll find out his view on it next. All right, Uber shares are off session lows. Still, though, down big today. There it is, more than seven percent. The Labor Department unveiling a proposal that would make it harder for companies to treat workers as independent contractors. It poses a big blow, of course, to the gig economy. Joshua on Uber, uh, this issue has been out there for gosh, seemingly ever. So, what do you take from this, which seems to escalate the issue itself?
1: This is pretty stupid. In November of twenty twenty proposition twenty two passed in the state of California, which is where this battle over the classification of gig workers uh, really had it had its uh, had its ground zero and it passed so overwhelmingly that the debate all but ended fifty eight percent of people voting said that these drivers should be able to maintain their status as contractors so the story of uber is that unlike Lyft, they went overboard to deliver new benefits packages, uh, higher, higher rates, etc., for their drivers. And as a result, they have largely fought through the driver shortage. The people who are on that platform do not, I repeat, do not, in overwhelming numbers, want to be classified as W-2 employees. Yes, they want better benefits, Yes, of course, they want a better take rate, but they don't want to work for someone. They have made that clear. Voters have made it clear that they prefer there to be a a, a third way, quote unquote. And this this uh, new saber rattling from the DOL, it's unfortunate. The timing's not great. They're doing this in a down market for tech stocks. But I think it can safely be ignored. I think the facts on the ground are we're going to have the status quo going forward. And Uber has done a very good job with their quote unquote labor force uh, ever since Prop 22 went through.
3: So it has no impact. Uh, it doesn't impact your view of the stock a- at all, whether you no. think the policy is good, no, dumb, or different.
1: Yeah. Listen, I've been wrong on the stock. I've owned it. I've owned it from higher prices. But um, this is, I think, one of the most misunderstood stocks in the market. And you look at the revenue growth here. You look at the fact that going into the pandemic, they were about to go cash flow positive. The pandemic obviously threw a wrench into a two year wrench into that. They have fought their way all the way back. This is now on the verge of being a profitable quarter over four over four straight quarters. That's something that a lot of people thought they'd never be able to do. They're going to do it. I don't think that the stock uh, should have a, a big reaction to news like this. I think Uber should do what it has to do. To keep its drivers happy but i think the evidence demonstrably says that they have been Mm -hmm. and i repeat the drivers do not want to be employees of lyft of uber of DoorDash. they don't want it so i think we've got i think we've got a real politic on the ground in terms of the way this thing has already gone okay and i don't think that this is going to be an issue again all right let's take a quick break we'll come back we'll do final trades next
8: Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now.
3: Well, we have a big overtime. Secretary Yellen, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, a CNBC exclusive, 4 o'clock Eastern Time. Looking forward to that. Victoria Green, Adam Parker, Joe T., Rest of the crew there as well. I'll see you in a little bit for that. Stephanie Link, let's do final trades.
5: Home Depot. I haven't recommended a housing stock in a very long time. It's down 29%, trades at 17 times earnings, 2.6% yield. I think they can have sustainable mid single digit comps going forward. So I like that one.
3: Okay, even with housing,
5: it's down a lot. Discounting a a lot of bad news. All
3: right. Okay, Josh Brown.
1: Uh, I would say Berkshire Hathaway B shares. Um, This is a a stock that should hold up regardless of what goes on. All right. Brenda Vigello.
7: Um, Adobe. So this is a stock that um, has its end markets, really. They are industry standard in. They made an acquisition of Figma, which caused the stock to gap lower. We think if you look back at the history of management's acquisitions, they've done a great job of making great ones that that have increased the total addressable market for the company. So we think it's worth a look here.
3: All right. Farmer Jim.
6: Alaska Airlines, strongest balance sheet in the sector. We see what's going on with news from American Airlines. I'm traveling this week. I can tell you airplanes are packed.
3: Okay. All right. Nice turnaround for stocks. Uh, We are in the green. across the board. There you see it. Uh, Dow's good for better than 1% too. I'll see you in overtime. Exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern only on CNBC.